Good morning, everyone. Hey, hey, good. It's good to be here with you guys. Um, I want you to know that whenever I get invited to speak somewhere, like I don't take it lightly. Um, you know, I understand that like coming up to, like I was, I was praying about this this morning uh, before I came up here. Like I'm coming to a group of people to preach them the word of God. Like what an awesome responsibility. You know, and so I have reverence for that. I want you guys to know that, I, you know, I'm preparing a message and I prayed for you guys. I prayed for myself. I prayed that the Holy Spirit will speak this morning to all of us. And so I've titled this sermon from betrayal to restoration and, uh, you know, kind of this reclaim message about God reclaiming our story. And so I was looking up, um, you know, a story that like kind of would fit that as an introduction. And, and I read a lot, so there's a lot of different um, fiction novels that I've read over time. But I was looking up a story and I found one I thought kind of fits this sermon. But I have to warn you, I've never seen this movie. I just read kind of a summary of it. And I'm pretty sure it's not a good movie to watch. So I am not condoning this movie. If you know what movie I'm talking about, I'm not even going to name it for you. But I want to read you a little summary of the plot of this movie. So you have this main character named Judd. And uh, he finds out, and I know this is family Sunday. So I'm going to tone this down a bit for you guys. Uh, don't worry. So I did think about that. So he finds out that his wife was doing some extracurricular things with his boss. Let's leave it at that. And so he finds out about that, and of course that causes conflict in the relationship. So he moves out, and then his sister calls him to tell him, hey, our father has died. And in his will, even though he was an atheist, he wants us to practice this mourning process where the whole family comes together for seven days of mourning. It's a kind of a big family. So I want you to imagine getting, I mean, you know, you think Christmas or Thanksgiving is bad enough for your family right? Imagine seven days with all of those family members you don't want to spend time with. So the whole family comes together for this funeral. The sister, Wendy, she begins to tell Judd and the rest of the family how unhappy she is in her marriage because her husband's a workaholic and how he neglects her. And then Judd reunites with his older brother, uh, and his older brother is actually married to Judd's ex-girlfriend. That's super weird, right? Um, and then during this family gathering, Wendy, while she is under the influence of some substances, leave it at that, begins to badger Judd, hey, why don't you tell everybody about what's going on in your relationship? Stop keeping it a secret. And so finally he gets frustrated and blurts it out, yeah, my wife's been doing this stuff. And uh, then his wife shows up the next day and says, hey, I am pregnant with your child. Yeah, that's going to be a fun family gathering, right? And I think uh, one of the famous authors, Tolstoy, if you know him, Russian author, he said this, happy families are all alike, but each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. I find that true, right? Every family has a unique story and every dysfunctional family has a very unique story. This is why I think some of you may know that your family puts the fun in dysfunctional. I think that's a fantastic line, and that deserves way more of a laugh than that. I'm just saying. Um, now, my wife makes fun of me because she tells me my humor is dumb. But this morning, we're going to look into the scriptures, and we're going to look at one of those dysfunctional families. And it is Joseph and his brothers. But in order to understand the story of Joseph and his brothers and their dysfunction, we have to go back to the backstory, which is with Jacob. Now, you guys remember Jacob, right? So Jacob ends up plotting with his mother when he's a young man to steal the birthright blessing from his brother Esau. So they're going to trick the dad. They're going to steal the blessing. They do this and they go, ah, Esau's going to get mad and he might kill me. So now I have to flee 
to live with my uncle in another land. So he leaves after stealing the birthright, tricking his dad, getting the birthright, flees to another land, lives with his uncle, goes to his uncle and goes, hey, your daughter, she's pretty attractive. I'd like to marry her. He goes, okay, that's fine. Work for me for seven years. Okay, seven years and then I get Rachel. He goes in to consummate the marriage, wakes up in the morning and goes, hold up. That's not Rachel. That's her sister. Talk about dysfunction. So he says, Laban, why would you do that to me? He's like, well, this is a custom. We don't want to give away the younger daughter before the older daughter. So I tell you what, if you work another seven years, I'll let you have her. So Leah starts to have kids. Rachel, of course, she's getting jealous. Hey, I'm the favorite wife. I want to be able to produce kids. I can't produce kids. So I tell you what, you take my maidservant. This is a fantastic idea, right? You take my maidservant and raise up kids to me through her. So of course, you know, Jacob's like, oh, well, you know, if you're going to tie my hands behind my back, I guess I will. So he starts having kids with her. And then of course, Leah's like, well, I can't be outdone. You take my maidservant, do the same thing. So he does, right? And then Rachel finally, after all of this, has Joseph, the favorite child. And so my question to you is this, do you not think that there was a little bit of dysfunction in that household when you have four women and you're going to have 12 boys, that there is not some jealousy and bitterness and a little bit of dysfunction happening in that household, and then that's going to get passed down to the boys. You're telling me that out of those 12 boys, none of them ever overheard a conversation between Jacob and one of, you know, one of the parents, one of the, one of the wives, about some frustration with another one, or how there was a little bit of drama going on, and they didn't pick up on that? Yeah, I'm pretty sure they did. And so that's why we see this in chapter 37 of the book of Genesis. We start to see some of this dysfunction play out. Look at verse 2. It says this, Joseph, when he was 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still young, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah. That was the two maidservants. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. So here's a guy, bad decision, He's going to go, look, my brothers aren't doing a good job. There's already some tension in the family. I got a bright idea. Let me go rat on him to my father. Yeah, how's that going to work out for you? You continue in the verse, verse 4. It says, his brother saw that their father loved him more than all the brothers, so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Now, you know, I think we all have a family member or two that we go, ah. That person is a headache to deal with. You know what I'm talking about. But when you go to family gatherings, you still try to keep the peace. You still try to be respectful, you know, and make sure everything's all good. So you smile and you shake their hand and, you know, whatever. It's Thanksgiving, so you pass the plate to them. It's all good, even though you don't like them. That's okay. And as soon as you get back to your car with your husband or your wife, you're like, "Mm, gosh, I wish I would never have to go spend time with them again. We all have that family member. Don't act like you don't. I promise you, you do. Maybe you're that family member. Just kidding. So you still try to keep the peace. But here we see in the story, they are already at a point where they can't even speak on friendly terms. So Joseph might show up. Hey, Reuben, what's going on? Shut up, Joseph. (laughs) Hey, Naphtali, what what are you doing? I'm cleaning my room because, you know, I don't want to get ratted out by you again. Wow. Like, do you see the dysfunction that's beginning to happen here? You continue on in chapter 37, verses 12 and 13. It says, Then his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said, I will go. 
Now, back in verse 2, he was shepherding the flock with them. We're 10 verses later, and they're not even doing this together anymore. Now, Joseph is an outcast. They're not speaking to him on friendly terms. He can't even go do the household chores with his brothers. This is how much dysfunction is building in the household. So much to the point in verse 18, it says, When they saw him from a distance, and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. Don't gloss over that. I mean, they got to a point where literally they were ready to kill their brother. And they tried to. They had this big plan. We're going to kill him. We're going to throw him in this pit. And then one of the brothers is like, I don't know if I'm ready to do that. Maybe we just, you know, uh, throw him in there. Let's figure things out for a second. And then they see a band of merchants going by. They're like, ah, well, you know, if we kill him, we'll just kill him. But I tell you what, what if we sold him into slavery? Then at least we would get some money out of it. So they sell him into slavery and they take his coat and they dip it in blood and they take it back to the dead and go, hey, look, you know, uh, he got eaten by a wild animal. Darn. (laughs) Right? Like, is that not dysfunctional? And this is the point that they're at. We know the rest of the story, most of us do, but let me recap it for you because I want to get to the end, to the restoration part. In these intervening years, you know that Joseph goes down and he gets sold into Potiphar's house. And Potiphar's wife is like, hey, you know, you're kind of an attractive young man. Why don't you, uh, you know, and he's like, whoa, no, 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 not doing that. So she's like, oh, you're going to disrespect me. Okay, I'll I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Hey, Potiphar, this guy tried to take advantage of me. Gets him thrown in jail. He gets thrown in jail. He meets the cupbearer and the baker of Pharaoh who are under investigation. And they have a dream and he he interprets their dreams. He says, yeah, you're going to be killed. But you, you're going to be put back in your position. Don't forget me when you're put back there. Of course, he's forgotten. But then Pharaoh has a dream and the cupbearer is like, oh yeah, I remember this guy. I bet you if you go call him, he'll interpret your dream. And Joseph did. And after he interpreted the dream, the Pharaoh exalts him to the second in command in all of Egypt. So he goes literally from being hated by his brothers. They fake his death, sell him into slavery. He gets thrown into jail. And now he is second in command in the greatest nation on the face of the planet at that time. And a famine hits. A famine hits Egypt and also goes all the way up into the land of Canaan. So much that his brothers have to come down to Egypt to buy grain. And that's where the meeting is going to happen. Now. That's the backdrop. And I have, to, I have to pause the sermon. I want to tell you this. Look, I have written a lot of sermons in my life. I've been preaching for like 20 years now uh, at many different places, many different venues. I have done a lot of sermons, a lot of lessons. I understand how to write a sermon, but I could not figure out how to make a smooth transition here for you. So I'm going to do a hard break and break all the rules of sermon preparation to tell you this. I have to warn you about a fallacy that we all make when we read the Bible. And we do it, this is a great story that people do it with. Because we are at a point where we see Joseph and and all the stuff that happened to him, and now he is exalted in this position. He's about to meet his brothers again, and there's going to be a restoration. Spoiler alert if you've never read the scriptures. But we do this fallacy. So let me illustrate the fallacy for you. A couple weeks ago, I had a dream. And I don't often remember my dreams. Usually I I boom, I'm out, I wake up, mm, okay. I don't have a lot of dreams, at least that I remember. But I had this crazy dream. So I'm going to explain this dream to you. I was in a swamp. It was dark, it was murky, and there was like a bunch of other people, like 10, 12 other people, and we were in some sort of competition. It wasn't like a game show, but we were in a competition. We had to find this relic. 
And the relic was the American flag. I don't know why the American flag was a relic at this point, but there weren't American flags, but there was one. And we had to find it. So we were wading through the swamp. We were going through all these abandoned buildings, you know, and having to watch out for the swamp creatures, whatever. And I go to this one building, and what do I find? What do you guys think? American flag, right? So I found the American flag. And it's like, oh my gosh, there it is. I got it. So I get the American flag, and I get this, like, pole, like this three-foot pole. And I put it on the pole, and then I go outside, and I got a horse. Don't know where the horse came from, but this is a dream, remember. So I got a horse, and what are you going to do when you have a horse? You ride a horse, right? So I get on a horse. I would never ride a horse in my life. Those things are scary. But I get on this horse, and I start to ride it. Now, my horse has wings. It must have been drinking Red Bull. Um, So I get on my horse that has wings, and we begin to take off flying, which is even more scary than a normal horse, but remember, it's a dream. So I'm holding the American flag, like Braveheart style, you know? I'm serious. This is what I was doing in my dream. And I'm riding this horse, man, in all of my glory. And I'm like, yeah, freedom, whoa, America. And um, I come down, I get out of the swamp, and there's like this beautiful, like, courtyard area. Like, imagine a scene from like an English movie with like a castle and big courtyard and nice hedgerows and all that stuff. And I swoop in there and there's like all these people I know, right? There's all these people I know from church, from my family life, from different things I do. And they're all like having this big potluck (laughs) or whatever, because that's what we do in the South. So I come swooping in on my horse and they're like, oh my gosh, look, there he is. He's got the flag. And I'm like, yeah. And I pass it off to somebody. And then I go off my horse and I'm like, all right, where's the fried chicken? Um, and then my, my dream ends, right? And so I'm telling my wife this. I'm like, hey, sweetheart, check this out. Let me tell you about this crazy dream that I had. So I, I go through this whole dream with her. And she literally, this is her response. She goes, oh, of course. You're the hero of the story. You, of all people, you're the one who saved the day and found the relic. Mm-hmm. Makes sense, Billy. And I'm like, oh, come on. That's not what the point of the dream was. I have no idea what it was. But it's not that I'm the hero. Okay, maybe it was, right? We all like to think of ourselves as the hero of the story. And this is what we do with the scriptures. This is the fallacy. We read ourselves into the scripture that it's talking about us, that we are the hero of the story. We are Joseph. That's what we do. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been betrayed in the past, and that's led me into some hard times. But if I stay faithful to God, he will exalt me to a great position. And then, if again, if I stay faithful, then he will bring back to me those who have betrayed me, and they will have to repent, and then I will be glorified. We do this with all sorts of things in Scripture. You do it with David and Goliath, right? I've preached that sermon before. Who is your giant? God can conquer your giants in your life because you're David. You're the one of great faith who's going to kill God's enemies. That's, that's a bad way to read, read the Bible. Because let me ask you this question. What happens? What happens when you never get out of that proverbial jail? And you're never exalted? What happens when the ones who have betrayed you never come back for restoration? Then you become disillusioned and you're like, hey, God, what's the deal? I'm doing my part. Why aren't you doing yours? Where is the end of my story? Why am I not glorified yet into this great position and an honor is given to me? Why are my enemies not defeated at my hand yet? Come on, God. This is how we read the scriptures. And we end up maybe becoming disillusioned. The Bible is not filled with a bunch of hallmark stories 
right, for our entertainment. Or for us to look at and go, oh, that's a really cool story. Let me see how I fit into that. No, no, no. The scripture is not about you. The scripture is about Jesus. You remember Jesus one time when he was having a discussion with the Pharisees? He says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but they what? They point to me. He says the scriptures are about me. And then when he rose from the dead, he took his disciples aside. It says he took them from Moses through the rest of the prophets and showed them how it was about him. But oftentimes we put ourselves into that position. We're not Joseph. Jesus is Joseph. We're the brothers. We're the ones who have sold God out. We're the ones who have committed the great offense. We are the ones who are sinners. We are not the hero of the story. We are the villain. Look at Genesis chapter 45. It says Joseph, once he reunited with his brothers, and he finally revealed himself to them. He said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you. This was God's plan to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing or harvesting. But God sent me before you to preserve you. You, the 12 brothers, or the 11, for a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. And again, if you look at yourself and go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's what God's doing. He's going before me to preserve my life. Well, what happens when, when one of your family members die or when you die? Oh, did God not keep his promise? No, because it's not about you. You have to understand everything in the Bible you read has a greater context The context of this story is not just for God to show you some sort of nice hallmark story. That's what I said before. It's called redemptive history. The Old Testament is not just a bunch of random collection of stories for us to learn fun life lessons. The Old Testament is God... God's narrative of him driving forth this story called redemptive history. Go, this was creation. You did the fall. Sin and death came. Now let me show you how I had a plan to restore you to fellowship with me. That's why the stories in the Old Testament are there. So how does this story of Joseph fit into it? Well, if you go back and you remember the great promise that God gave to Abraham, I will bless you. I will turn you into a great nation. And in you... And through your seed, the whole world will be blessed. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has the 12 tribes. How come in the Bible we don't read about a lot about Ishmael? How come we don't read too much about Esau? How come the Bible funnels its story down to these people? Because it's redemptive history. And God is trying to show... Look, look, who wrote the book of Genesis? Moses. When did he write the book of Genesis? After Israel has come out of Egypt, come out of the Exodus, wandered in the, you know, come to Mount Sinai, wandering in the wilderness, and he's writing the law, and he's telling the Israelites, we're going to the promised land. The promised land is promised to us, the nation of Israel, because of what God told Abraham, because God's going to fulfill this promise of redemptive history. And God, the whole time, this is the point, God the whole time has been working in the background to preserve the remnant, to keep his promise. That's the point of this story. 
That's why Moses has included this here to the Israelites to tell them, look, this is how you ended up in Egypt, but God is working the whole time in the background. He has not forsaken it. He has not forgotten the promise, and he will fulfill his promise. And so you say, well, then what, what can we learn from this? Man, there's so many things we can learn from this when we understand it in its proper context. But I just want to give you one for today's sermon. When you get to the point when Joseph reunites with the brothers, what's interesting is that Joseph, it's been like 20 years, he looks like an Egyptian now. He doesn't look like a Hebrew. In fact, he's speaking the Egyptian dialect. He's not even speaking their language because it says there's interpreter there before them. And they talk amongst themselves thinking he can't understand them, but he can. They don't know that. And so Joseph, what he does is he puts his brothers to multiple tests. This is fascinating. Multiple tests, and he's trying to see, are they the same as when they sold me into slavery? Or have they changed? And one of those tests, look at chapter 42, verse 19 through 20. He says this to them. And remember, they don't know who he is at this point. He says, if you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined in your prison. But as for the rest of you, go carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. Now, the youngest brother at this point is Benjamin. Remember, we said Jacob had four wives. Rachel had number 11, which was Joseph, and then number 12, which is Benjamin. Benjamin is Joseph's real full brother. And he's the youngest one. He says, bring your youngest brother to me so your words may be verified and you will not die. And they did so. What's so interesting about this is Joseph gives them a chance to literally take grain to save their family from famine and abandon one of their brothers in Egypt. And they could have gone back to Canaan and had all the bread and all the grain they wanted to and gone back and lived a happy life just like they did when they abandoned him. But what did they do? Look at, look at chapter 42, verse 21. They said to one another, truly we are guilty concerning our brother. They're, now they're talking about Joseph. They're remembering back. Because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon, has come upon us. And Reuben, who's the oldest one, answered them and said, did I not tell you? Do not sin against the boy and you wouldn't listen. Now comes the reckoning for his blood. And if you go through all those tests that Joseph does for them, constantly they are willing to put themselves in harm's way to protect Benjamin. What has happened in the story? There's a restoration that's happening because they recognize their earlier faults and their earlier sins and they don't want to commit them anymore. And this is the point that I want to drive home to you. That God gives us opportunities in life to pass tests that we once failed. And sometimes we fail them multiple times. But God the whole time is in the background of our lives wanting to reclaim our story. Wanting to reclaim our past. And this is where the famous verse comes from. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. I want to tell you a story about a guy named Carter. And there should be a picture that's going to pop up on your screen so you can see who I'm talking about. Now, Carter is 25 years old. And probably about six years ago, five, five years ago, I met Carter here in Hanover. You want to know how I met him? So I was working as a sheriff's deputy here in Hanover. And I saw Carter, I didn't know who he was, pass me. 
And he gave me one of those looks that told me he was up to no good. So he had like a expired registration or something. So I pulled him over and I walk up to his car and he's super nervous. And so I asked him if he had any weapons. He said no, but there were some other things going on. So I was like, I'm going to get you out the car. I get him out the car and what's there right beside his hand? A gun. So me and Carter had a little bit of a talking to and I put him in handcuffs and then I took Carter to jail. Carter had a long felony history, drug use, uh, distribution stuff, felony, other felony charges, whatever. So he's a bad dude, you know? And I said, hey, that's good. One gun out of the hands of a drug dealer. One drug dealer off the street. Good. Let's go, you know? Off to the next one, right? That's the last I thought about it. Well, then a couple years later, I'm helping out at this place down in King William. It's called The Fix. Some of you guys may have heard of it. The Fix was started by two of my friends, Fred and Casey. Fred and Casey were long, lifelong drug addicts who were in and out of jail. And Fred and Casey had found Jesus and gotten clean, and, you know, they're fully in love with the Lord, and they had started this ministry to help men who had gone to jail for drug addiction and who were getting out of jail but were on probation and had to go through a program. So they started a program called The Fix. And it's a very highly based discipleship, Christian discipleship sort of an, um, you know, sort of a program. And so they bring the guys into the house. They stay there for a year. They put them through this program, teach them life skills, get them a job, you know, teach them how to not do drugs anymore, not commit crimes anymore, you know, all this stuff, right? Get them back on their feet and try to get them to have a good life and loving the Lord. And I show up one night to teach. And who do I see? Carter. And Carter's a big boy. You could tell. I'm like 145 pounds soaking wet. <laughs> and I was like, oh boy, how's this going to go down? And this kid walks up to me and goes, hey, you remember me? And I was like, yeah, I remember you. You remember me? He's like, yeah, I remember you. And I'm thinking to myself, he's either going to punch me or hug me. And that kid smiled and he reached up and gave me a big old hug. He said, man, I just want to thank you so much. You know, like this is what's happened to me and I've turned my life around. And he, he was baptized into the Lord. Man, this kid got it. Carter got it. You know, when it first happened, let me tell you what. I've been doing ministry for long enough. I've seen so many people come in and out of the church. Catch on fire, boom, fizzle out. They're gone back to their old life. So I said, okay, cool, man. That's great. I'm here for you. But it's like, we'll see. We'll see. Man, Carter was getting after it. He was awesome. He was going downtown. The fix went downtown Richmond. They would feed homeless people. They would preach the gospel to them. He was fully involved with that. Fully involved down at the house, discipling other guys, teaching people the scriptures, wanting to go off to Bible college, preaching his testimony at different churches. I mean, awesome to watch this change of life, this reclaimed story. He, he got out of the fix. He graduated. He got a job, a really good job in real estate stuff. He got married. I mean, what else could you ask? And then he started talking to me about starting a ministry like The Fix over in Henrico. And he wanted me to start teaching at it to help, you know, with it. And I was like, man, I'd be, I'd be honored to do that. Awesome. And uh, that was recent. That was like, you know, back in the fall, he was talking to me about this. A couple weeks ago, Carter got COVID. And uh, he went into the hospital 
And he went on a ventilator. And then things started to turn worse. And then last Saturday, I found out that Carter passed away. And that's hard. Because I was like, what an awesome story. You know, what an awesome story to see this guy in the turnaround and how God was going to take the man's story of the brokenness and the drugs and the arrest and turn that around for good. And then life was ripped away. But I went to his funeral and, uh, man, it was packed. Hundreds of people. Hundreds of people there. So many people that he touched in the short time that he was a Christian. And I told my friend who also knew him, I said, you know, his race, his race was a sprint, but man, he nailed it. <laughs> and he's still going to have an impact in his death. And, and this is what I want to say this morning to you is that the purpose of this story is not to say that you're the hero. The purpose of the story is to say that God's working in the background of your life and of my life to reclaim the things that we have failed at in the past. And he can use that for his glory. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to take right now and transition straight into communion. So you guys should have picked communion up when you came in. I want you to go ahead and get that out now. And we're just going to go ahead and move right into a communion thought. And I want to say this. If you're a Christian here this morning, it doesn't matter. The failures in the past, the sins in the past, the, the things that you regret, any of that stuff. If you turn it over to the Lord, I guarantee you. He can reclaim it for his glory. I mean, this guy, for 23 years of his life, was living for himself. In the last two years, sprinted for the Lord and made a huge impact that's going to still last. And some people are going to end up in heaven because of him. How awesome is that? And you're still here. And God could use your story for his glory. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, or maybe you're debating on whether you want to be one or not, I want to say this. Why would you not? I mean, there's no purpose to life outside of serving the Lord. That's why I'm so glad of all the things God has left us to know that he is true. He is real. His word is trustworthy. And Jesus really rose from the dead because it gives life purpose. Even in our brokenness, God can reclaim it. And that's what we rejoice in when we take communion, that through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we have life, we have hope, and we have purpose. Will you guys pray with me? Father God, thank you so much for your love. Father God, I thank you for how you've given us Jesus. And Lord, we, we are sinners. I mean, that's why we are here, because we recognize that we are broken people who could not do this without you. Not just do life, Lord, but we couldn't redeem ourselves. I mean, we are sinners. Father, we bow before you and we just offer our lives to you and ask you, please reclaim it, because without you, we are nothing. Thank you, Lord, for Christ. Thank you for his sacrifice. And Lord, may we remember him at this time. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.